Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Yeah, I came here in 51, me and my mule, Brownie. We was chasing the gold, what folks said was in the poop here in these parts. I got me a little prospect and stake up here on Pinch of Love Creek. I've been panning poop ever since. I don't reckon I'll ever settle down with a mate, unless I can find somebody with no sense of smell. When you prospect for fecal gold, you smell... Well, I reckon you could use your imagination. Ain't that right, Brownie? Howdy, stranger. Talking to your mule? Who are you, and what do you want up here? Name's Bobby Mike McManure, up from Muckmas, Texas. Folks call me BM. I heard tell there was gold up in these parts. I heard it was stool's gold, not fool's gold. Well, even if there is, this here's my stake, bought and paid for. I guess you should rightly go poop pan somewheres else. Huh. And what if I say I don't want to? I reckon we'll settle in the usual way, with a six-shooter. I reckon so. But before we do, allow me to say, ma'am, you smell mighty fine. (laughs) Ain't nobody said that to me in years. (laughs) It's true. You smell like a pretty little meadow muffin on a summer's day. You do have a way with words, B.M. So I've been told. I don't mind saying you got a manly smell of bat guano on you. I guess it all depends on what you're used to. You fancy maybe settling down with me? Well, I reckon so, but you'd have to give me a ring. All nice and proper. Now, where am I going to find a gold ring in these? <laughs> Never mind. Answered my own question. Meanwhile, here's a special show on Pooh, Sham, Winnie, and the kind we're talking about here. Because, yes, there really are people trying to extract gold from it. And now he's been up here prospecting so long, my mule brownie's starting to look good to him. Colin McEnroe. Welcome to our poo show. This is kind of a high-concept show, and it did start when I heard about something called the no-poo movement, which we will explain to you in just a second. But then in the second, you could say, movement of our show, we will do a fecally-themed poo segment. It'll be a fecal surprise. I won't tell you what it is right now. And then finally, no poo show could be complete, of course, without Winnie the Pooh. And there actually is something kind of interesting going on right now in the world of Winnie the Pooh. It's not as though everything that Winnie the Pooh ever was going to do has been done. There are more things to do. So we'll tell you about that in the final segment. But let's begin with the topic that started it all, and that is the No Poo Movement. Joining us now is Savannah Bourne, a writer and editor living in New York City and the author of Shampoo Free, a DIY guide to putting down the bottle and embracing healthier, uh, happier, healthier hair. Welcome to our show, Savannah Bourne. Thank you so much, Colin. First of all, we should say what this is. Well, I guess that made it yeah. sort of obvious. Uh, no poo movement, and you and you did that, I think, or the the, the no poo movement does the, does this kind of uh, intentionally to create a right. certain mystique. Mm-hmm. The no poo movement. What could that mean? Right. Everyone wants to know. Right. <laughs> we should explain the wellspring of this. So the idea sure. ultimately is that that maybe shampoo isn't that great for you, and isn't that great for the environment. Let's start with you. What's wrong with shampoo okay. for you? Um, Well, basically, the idea is um, not that shampoo is necessarily so terrible, but just that it's not really necessary. And it sort of creates this vicious cycle 
um, where, you know, it's being so effective at its job, the, the surfactants that are in shampoo really strip the grease out of your hair. That's why you need conditioner usually. Because of that, you might end up having your scalp sort of overproducing grease, leading to more grease. So the idea is that the less you use shampoo, the less you need shampoo. I, I can I sort of confirm that years ago for yeah. an article for Men's Health, I was mm-hmm. I did I did have my hair cut. It was a complicated article, but I had my hair cut by some real fancy New York professional, mm-hmm. professional the kind of person who cuts people's hair for like I think she he he cut Nora Jones's hair for her album cover. It was sort of right. stuff like that. And he said, you know, really don't don't shampoo so much. Don't yep. shampoo every day. Um, it really isn't particularly good for your hair to shampoo every day. So this is just sort of something we do because we think we're supposed to, as opposed right, to right exactly. You know. It's- it's interesting because it was really sort of manufactured by advertisers. Um, I think as recently as maybe the 1970s or so, daily shampooing wasn't really like the it thing to do. But once you started seeing all of these, you know, beautiful bouncing locks and Farrah Fawcett's beautiful hair, and, you know, it just sort of created this concept that, yes, you do need shampoo every single day, even though, you know, most stylists will tell you, these people who are, you know, really sort of experts at hair will tell you you don't need to use it quite so much. Right. In the arc of human history, I mean, this is, uh, right. you know, we, we, if you go back to, what, uh, the early 1900s, there's questions about whether you need to do this, whether you even are you right. even allowed to do it, whether it's a good idea to do it more than right. like, once a month, right? right? Yeah. One of the um, really interesting uh, articles that I found in the course of doing research for the book was, um, it was from the New York Times, um, and it, it was published in 1908. And you can actually, you can just Google it and find it. Um, but it talks about how it's okay to shampoo once every two weeks, up to once every two weeks. But then it says, actually, once a month or once every six weeks would be better. So, you know, I mean, that is about 100 years ago. It is a while ago. But, you know, just the idea that they're saying back then, oh, it's okay to do it as often as every two weeks. Right. Um, It really goes to show you, yeah, how much we've changed. Exactly. (laughs) It's it's an inversion of how we think. It would be okay to do it once every two weeks Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to once every day. Uh, and there's not talking about it as opposed to once every month or every six weeks. So one reason not to do this then, and then it's a product that we maybe don't need that mm-hmm. we're spending a, in some cases a, a lot of money on. I, I personally don't spend right. very much money on shampoo, but one can, right? I mean, one the, certainly can. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, these the salon type of stuff and everything. It really gets kind of expensive. And then in your book, I mean, you you do suggest that uh, although the jury isn't necessarily in on a lot mm-hmm. of this stuff, in aggregate, you look at all these chemicals. It's kind of like what Michael Pollan says about food if right. you're looking at a lot of a lot of names on the label that your grandmother wouldn't recognize um yeah, exactly. then those things are complicated things that may or may not be good for you right yeah so um you know as you said the jury is still out on a lot of them um for the book i sort of tried to look at all of the different types of chemicals that tend to be in shampoo and just sort of explain what they are and then look at if there is any research that shows whether or not they're going to be problematic either for you personally or for the environment. And there was, you know, there's no like super scare factor really necessarily. Um, I would say actually the one that is sort of you want to avoid the most is fragrance because that actually um, is not regulated. So fragrance can be made up of all these different chemicals and you don't actually really know what's in there. And so the environmental working group specifically says, like, buy fragrance-free as much as possible because it really can have these sort of sneaky chemicals in it that you really might not want to use. Again, it's not, you know, there's no really broad study that's showing this, but um, it's possible that 
the use of things like sulfates and stuff in the water system, then we're using so much shampoo on a daily basis and washing it down um, into the water system. And that might be having some effect, especially things like dandruff shampoos, which use like a, a fungicide, um, can be having some effect on the, the little creatures that live in our water, which aren't very helpful for the environment in general. So, and, and there, we, you know, yeah. there and, might be some reason. And we, we know pretty well that microbeads, which are not in all kinds of shampoos, right. those really are bad. Yeah. Oh, those are terrible. Yeah. Um, I think New York State is actually trying to get those banned. Yeah, those are really bad. Those are just a, definitely a known issue. So I would say, you know, a, a, not a lot of shampoos have them. A lot of face washes or body washes have them. So if you happen to use those, you really shouldn't. That one is pretty, the research is pretty clear that that's a problematic one. Yeah. I believe there's also a ban in the works here in Connecticut. In fact, there was a bill in the legislature, mm-hmm. but in the legislature, everything gets passed uh, in the last few hours, really late at night when right. uh, our sham- yeah. the shampoos we use are affecting right. our cognition. I can't remember whether it got passed or not. So, I mean, there's the general argument. One of the things that intrigues me is, I mean, you've heard me use the word movement a few times. Mm -hmm. This isn't just a book by you and then maybe some people doing it, right? I mean, you go on the web Mm -hmm. and there's something... People like kind of narrating their personal journey about this, right? There's something, there's some part of that. Explain what that's all about. Yeah, so it's really, I mean, it's sort of been like a grassroots movement, which I think is why you see so much of this, um, because there isn't really a lot of scientific research into it. A lot of it is just people experimenting, seeing what works. And so the movement sort of grew on message boards and blogs, but has also sort of got this, you know, like uh, we were talking earlier about stylists are really seeing this as a positive movement as well. So um, you're getting it on both sides, sort of people who want to embrace a more, you know, DIY simple lifestyle, and then you have the sort of more stylistic side of it as well, the more trendy aspect of it as well. Yeah, so I think a lot of it is just people are, it it really is a journey. It involves a lot of experimenting, and so people want to bounce ideas off of each other. Everyone's trying to troubleshoot all the time. Really, one of the reasons for doing the book was just that all of the information, there's so much information out there, and it's really, it's all sort of found in these disparate corners all over the internet and different magazine articles and that kind of thing, but it's hard to really get definitive guide. So one of the reasons why we decided to do the book was to give people sort of a one-stop you know, resource that they could then use and not have to be reading through every single message board that they could find um, and you know, hopefully have more of the information in one place. But yeah, it's really, it's a, it's a vibrant community for sure. A lot of people really like to talk about what's worked for them and what hasn't and ask each other ideas. And so it's nice in that way. It's very, you know, you have a community along with you if you decide to embark upon the journey. So uh, one of the terms that you use, Savannah Bourne, in your book, Shampoo Free, a DIY Guide to Putting Down the Bottle and Embracing Healthier, Happier Hair, one of the terms that you use and one of the terms of art of this music, uh, of this movement, is detoxing. So detoxing mm-hmm. is when you're, you're quitting shampoo. Um, mm-hmm. And so things happen there in the detox. Talk about the detoxing period. All right. So the detoxing period, theoretically what's going on is, um, so your hair has been so used to these really um, harsh detergents that are in most drugstore shampoos. So you take that away and then your hair says, oh, wait a minute, Uh, your scalp and your hair and your oil glands say, hey, where did my friend go that was, you know, removing all of this from my hair every single day and then sort of goes into overdrive and produces a little bit more grease as a result. So when people talk about the detox period, they're usually saying it usually happens, you know, maybe a week up to a month after you quit shampoo. Uh, A lot of people report that they see an increase 
in Greece for that time period. Um, sometimes it lasts a little bit longer. Some people, it's not really that much of an issue. Um, for me personally, it wasn't a big issue because I think I, it has been a very long time since I used shampoo on anything like a daily basis. So I think it was a lot easier for me to make the transition away from it completely because I had already not been using it as often. But if you happen to be a daily shampooer, you might go through a period where you're thinking, oh my goodness, my hair is just uh, out of control. This is so greasy. But there are ways to deal with it. You can make your own dry shampoo very easily out of corn starch. And um, if you have dark hair, you can mix in cocoa powder or cinnamon so it doesn't look like you have white powder on your head. And that will help you sort of as you transition out of that detox period, um, not to look so greasy when you're in public. I also wondered whether it would make sense. I mean, obviously, this isn't for everybody, but if I were about to do this, maybe I'd cut my hair a little bit shorter for that period, so I'd be... Yeah, you know, and it's a great idea to do that just to sort of get your hair back into uh, a little bit more of a blank slate, because your hair is going to be carrying around, you know, damage and split ends and that kind of thing. So if you get it a little bit more healthier, get rid of some of the older hair um, that's lived a longer life, then you can start with the fresh hair um, and have a better chance of success that way. Yeah, my hair actually uh, attends a support group without me just to talk about all the things that I've done to it and that I've put, yeah. put it through. <laughs> right. So, and in your book, you take us through this range of options, uh, ranging from a, you know, a simple combination of baking soda and mm-hmm. followed by some kind of vinegar rinse to right. Dr. Bronner's castile soap, which I have mm-hmm. just for the mm-hmm. reading, reading the label is. I, I oh, need, it's always a joy. Yeah. Right. Endless entertainment. I'm never quite sure what his <laughs> overarching ideology is, but right. he has a lot to tell us. <laughs> Part of and the so, so that's something you can use. And then it gets even more complicated and abstruse and culinary sounding. I mean, there's coffees mm-hmm. and teas and honeys and lemons and all kinds of things like that. And I suppose somebody like, you know, I mean, I pretty much devote about two or three minutes to my hair care every day, which is why I look like I'm doing some kind of permanent tribute to Ed, Grim- <laughs> Ed Grimley most of the time. But but um, but I mean, it seems as though you know, reading some of these narratives, that it could get kind of complicated. Like, okay, this thing isn't working out, so I need to do this and maybe a little bit more of that and keep an empty bottle in the shower so I can mix these two things. Are people really willing to to work at this uh, in lieu of something as simple as a shampoo that solves all your problems for you? Right. Well, I mean, so that certainly is an individual choice. And some people are um, really, you know, they like to experiment, sort of like people who like to cook or who don't like to cook. Some people love to say, okay, what's it going to What's going to happen if I put this spice in or if I put this spice in? And it is it actually is a pretty fun process to just sort of see, oh, what is this going to do? What is this? How does this change things? The other thing is that it's really if you use something simple like uh, Castile soap, for example, um, and then an acidic rinse afterwards, that's really not so different from just using a standard shampoo um, and conditioner. You still have a two step routine and it's still fairly easy. You just sort of have it in the shower with you. it's not so complicated. The other thing is that you can uh, potentially, if you if you just love your shampooing routine, you just want it to be sort of a one and done situation. There are products on the market that are formulated without the ingredients in shampoo that might be more problematic that you can turn to. People usually call those low poo options. Mm-hmm. So um, those are, you know, if you love your convenience and you can't bear to part with it, but you are curious to see what your life without shampoo would look like, then 
that's what I would recommend. There are some fascinating things in there. I mean, and, and all kinds of interesting correctives. I mean, I think uh, at one point you're talking about using maybe uh, vinegar or lemon juice, but that might lighten your hair. So there's other things right, that you use right, to yeah. darken your hair. Or maybe you like having it lighten your hair. We're talking, by the way, to Savannah Bourne. Uh, the book is Shampoo Free, a DIY guide to putting down the bottle uh, and embracing healthier, happier hair. Do you get a sense of what kind of person is attracted to this? I mean, obviously, there's a kind of person who is a little bit distrustful of mm-hmm. uh, of mass-produced products and things that have strange chemical-sounding names. Is that kind of who's doing it, or does it cut across categories? It definitely cuts across categories, uh, which is one of the fun things about it. So you definitely have the more sort of granola crowd, we could call them, you know, who want to sort of live a a chemical-free lifestyle. But it really, I mean, you know, I I live in New York and Brooklyn and, you know, seeing all the time these sort of beauty trends. It's a little bit hip. It's a little bit crunchy as well. It really is kind of gets a cross-section of everybody because because there are so many reasons why you might want to do it. So I think that's why it appeals to uh, a pretty broad audience. The question that came up for me reading the book is also, I use a, a shampoo and it's kind of a whatever shampoo, but mm-hmm. um, I think that's the name of the brand is whatever. And, <laughs> and so so then I'm doing this and presumably I am actually stripping out of my hair all kinds of things that would actually make my hair lustrous and have it make it seem like it had more body, which would be good because my hair is uh, limp and, and horrible. But um, uh, then I put, when it's all over, I put stuff back into it, right? I, right, I, I, don't, right. Use, I don't use a conditioner, but I use like a, a putty or a paste or something like that. Uh, so I, it's like, it's why am I shampooing at all if I'm going to put crap back into it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that is sort of one of the one of the concepts behind it is, you know, why you, you have to use the shampoo to take out the stuff that you put in there in the first place. So, so would that depending be my, on what you want to do, you know, yeah. if you want to like wear a mohawk every day, you're probably going to need a little bit of product to make that happen for you. So it depends on what you are going for too, and your own personal look. Right. No, I only wear a mohawk on Tuesdays and Thursdays, yeah. but I, but yeah, so, so that, so it's not guaranteed that, I mean, one thing that would be great for me, I suppose, if I did the no poo movement, I got off all this stuff and my hair finally kind of achieved whatever its normal set point is for oils mm-hmm. and just things that my body produces and puts into my hair, if I didn't have to really do anything to it. But I suppose it's not necessarily the case that I wouldn't still need to put a moussey kind of pasty yeah you know it's i mean it really you don't know until you try and it is so wildly different for different people um i've found that i don't really need to use hair products very much anymore which is nice i used to put all sorts of stuff in my hair to deal with frizz and whatnot um but it's been pretty nice for me and actually there is a sort of subset of the no poo crowd who use water only and that is they don't use any Castile soap, any baking soda, any conditioner. Um, they just use water. And that, you know, I have not been able to get that to work for me personally. I think a lot of it depends on the water that you use. A lot of it depends on just like the natural pH of your scalp and your hair. Um, but that is sort of the, the holy grail of the the shampoo-free set. You know, is, I, I, uh, wouldn't, I wouldn't call it the holy grail. I'd call it, <laughs> are you ready for this? Hiravana. Okay, you got very it. Good. Do you see very what I good. did there? That's very Caravana. good. Yeah. All right, listen. You should write for the no, the no poo movement. <laughs> right. <I> should hire you. <laughs> um, listen, Savannah Bourne, it's been great to talk to you. The book is Shampoo Free, a DIY guide to putting down the bottle and embracing healthier, happier hair. I want to do this, so I'll be back in touch. I'll let you know how it works. Let out. me know how it goes. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Savannah. All right. Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Coming up in the next segment. Well, we just talked about the poo that goes on your head. What other part of your body is connected to poo? 
Stay tuned. She smelled like dry shampoo. So uh, we're going to talk now about a different aspect of poo uh, here on our poo show. Uh, I'm going to try to not make any jokes uh, during this segment because I think our guest, Dr. Paul Westerhoff, has probably heard them all. He is a professor of environmental engineering at Arizona State University. Uh, I'm going to sort of put a framework around this so you know where we're going, and then we'll we'll get a little bit more deeply into this. So, uh, in fact, it turns out that in our waste, in our fecal waste, uh, there can be found various kinds of metals, unexpected metals. Some of them are precious metals. Some of them are non-precious metals. Uh, Part of the goal is to get the non-precious metals out of there so that our waste could be used for other things or fertilizing the asparagus patch or something like that. And obviously, if there's precious metals in there, we might want to get those out, too, for a different reason. And we also might want to know, how's all this stuff getting into our poo? Uh, So we're going to try to talk about all three of these things with Professor Paul Westerhoff. So one of the things that you did was to to look at what are sometimes called biosolids. Uh, showing up in waste treatment plants and look at them for the metals uh, that they contain. Uh, what did you find? I understand you found like 50 varieties of metals in our biosolids? Sure. So, you know, uh, everything you flush down the drain and flush down the toilet and, you know, that restaurants uh, get rid of every day and industry gets rid of, they all kind of flow together in uh, the pipes underground, the source system to centralized wastewater treatment plants that. Uh, they add oxygen and they grow bacteria, but it turns out that uh, lots of metals come down in these shores and uh, they end up sticking to the bacteria. And so when the bacteria settle out to purify the water, there's solids, this bacterial biomass that's left that ate everything that you didn't accumulate these metals. And so we looked a number of different places across the U.S. at these solids, these biosolids or sewage solids, and uh, we did find a whole host of kind of metals that we expected. We found copper that comes from, say, copper pipes. But we did find gold, silver, platinum, palladium, and uh, some other exotic things. So things like palladium and vanadium, these are sort of um, high-tech metals, right? They're used in cell phones and things like that. Yeah, so, you know, walking around every day, uh, you're right, our cell phones, our televisions, computers do have some of these kind of exotic uh, metals in them, like iridium. and But gold is also used in uh, some more common things. That you know, If you ever go to a fancy bakery and you get that little special cupcake with gold leaf on it, eat it, it goes somewhere. If you go to a dentist's office, they, they put in gold filling. Lots of people walk around with all types of bling, you know, on their, you know, around their neck, but they wash that stuff, jewelry stores. So, you know, there's lots of places that end up using small amounts of gold that do enter the sewage system. Obviously, these are all small amounts of gold, some of which, as you're saying, we eat. As Martha Stewart told us, we could eat gold. Uh, Some of it's coming from other places. It would feel like, it would seem like these would be such trace amounts that they really wouldn't be worth talking about. But I guess in aggregate, uh, Dr. Westerhoff, they really do amount to quite a bit if you look at, I don't know, say, uh, the waste from a million people. Yeah, so uh, everyone contributes a little bit. And what happens is bacteria that grow in the wastewater treatment plant that chew up, you know, milk and other byproducts, and it bioconcentrates. They sit there like a, a giant sponge. So these bacteria will stay in this wastewater treatment plant for about 20 days. So they're being exposed, and they really, you know, suck up these metals. And uh, it's good in, in terms of keeping 
toxic metals out of the environment, uh, things like copper and, and cadmium and zinc. It's always been recognized that they do a good job at removing these things to purify the water, but these uh, settled solids then also sponge up silver and gold. And it turns out, you know, for about a million people, like, like you said, we're looking at about $10 million a year worth of precious metals, most of it being in gold and silver in terms of the value. So, I mean, if you were to, in fact, play that out across the entire population in the United States, we're really talking about billions of dollars worth of gold, obviously not all of it recoverable. That's right. And, and so that, you know, it is the market value of these things in a purified form. I, I kind of make a joke with my, my graduate students that she has to figure out how to get enough gold out to make a, a wedding ring, and then she gets to graduate with her PhD. So, yeah, I mean, there, there's going to be a lot of challenges of how to get this stuff back out. But we also took uh, what are called electron microscopy images, essentially pictures at a very small scale, to try to figure out uh, are these little mini gold nuggets or are they just, you know, gold ions stuck onto the bacteria? Because uh, that really affects maybe how you'd go about develop, developing a, a new treatment system to, to remove it. And it turns out they're nano-sized, you know, micron-sized gold nuggets that are there. And so gold doesn't dissolve very easily. So when you, it braids off and breaks down, it, it ends up in these little particles. And so there's little particles of gold that are uh, worth, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars across the U.S. And it probably makes most sense for large communities, um, places like New York City, that are already have the, the infrastructure to treat these biosolids. Right now, you know, New York City will, will haul some of these biosolids off to New Jersey. They send some off to Virginia, Ohio, and Texas. And so they're essentially exporting their gold. But, uh, you know, these are oftentimes put onto agricultural fields. And so if society spends all this money to collect these materials, and now we're spreading them back out. So it has metals there worth value, but it also has uh, pesticides and pharmaceuticals, things that we don't want to get into the environment. So we think we could develop treatment systems that kind of pay for themselves by recovering this gold and silver while further treating all these pollutants in these sewage solids. So that phrase, you might be sitting on a gold mine, is almost literally true here. So we know that in the commercial mining process these days, there's chemical extraction is now part of mining. Is that is something similar to that, what you're talking about here in terms of getting these metals out of the poo? So sure. For, I'm from Arizona, and we have gold mines and silver mines in Arizona. And so you know, they'll crush you know, millions of tons of ore to, to get small amounts of, of gold, and they do chemical treat them. In Australia, they're really making some innovations on kind of greener technologies to extract gold and silver. I think those are part of the technologies that uh, could be employed here. But we can also employ some of the technologies that wastewater treatment plants are on the verge of using already. And we think that uh, by thinking about recovering these, these metals, it gives them added incentive. In fact, we've had a, a lot of utilities start asking us, how, do, how can we do this? You know, a lot of them are thinking about how to recover phosphorus. So phosphorus is an element that accumulates in, in these solids and, and is a fertilizer. And if it gets into the environment, it causes lots of algae growth problems, red tide, and other problems in, in estuaries. So utilities have to get out more and more phosphorus, but they have to find things to do with it. So they're actually starting to integrate technologies to just treat one element, phosphorus. So we think phosphorus is only one element. It turns out that for that million people, you might have 
eight to ten million dollars worth of gold and silver, but only fifty thousand dollars worth of worth of phosphorus. So focusing on phosphorus is good for the environment, but not for the pocketbook. And so we think that you know new technologies could generate kind of this win-win of recovering things we want to keep out of the environment and recovering things we might want to make some bling out of. Uh, we're talking to Paul Westerhoff. He's a professor of environmental engineering uh, at Arizona State University. Um, when you embarked on this study, I assume you already knew that there were metals that were collecting in the uh, the biosolids in, in the waste treatment system. First of all, was that sort of just com- common knowledge, and was the surprise how much and what kinds you found? So the Environmental Protection Agency uh, mandates utilities, water, wastewater utilities, monitor suite of metals, but these tend to be metals that are known to be toxic in the environment. Again, things like copper, cadmium, zinc, things that kill fish and other aquatic organisms. It turns out there's a really good database for about 10 to 20 elements, but there was really no impetus to to monitor gold, platinum, palladium, gadolinium, iridium, or these other, other metals. And so while we were going through this process, what we were really interested initially was trying to understand where some of the particles we know that people eat. So like titanium dioxide is an engineered nanoparticle that's in uh, food, it's in M&Ms and other things, and it goes through our body, it's in toothpaste, and it goes down the source. And we were really trying to figure out where all this titanium dioxide goes. So as we started figuring out and prepping these samples, we said, well, let's just put it into an instrument that gets us all the metals in the periodic table. And so by doing that, it really looked at uh, a much broader range of metals that other people had uh, looked at. So there's only a few samples that had been analyzed previously for things like gold, but no one really thought through how a wastewater treatment plant actually acts as a sponge. It, it does bioconcentrate gold. So um, that, that was definitely new information that these wastewater treatment plants bioconcentrate gold. That is new information. All right. So one of the questions that I think a lot of people would have once they understood this is, is there any way to know using, I don't know, some kind of biomarker or something, how much of these metals that you're finding, whether they're the precious metals or the other kinds of waste metals that you really want to keep out of of treated waste that might be spread on agricultural fields later, how much of them are actually in human feces as opposed to people washing their socks that have things in them, people, I mean, there's sort of a lot of ways in which stuff gets into the waste treatment system. It doesn't all involve peeing and pooping. There's uh, there's there's a lot of other ways in which stuff gets. So do you, do you know what the percentages are? Do you have any kind of sense of that? Not yet. Because of this work, I've gotten a lot of interesting phone calls. Uh, one guy collects uh, everything you spit, spit down the drain at a dentist office. And so he, he generates 55-gallon drums of this stuff called amalgam. It's uh, a lot of the stuff in your dental work. And uh, each of these drums contains five ounces of gold. Not all dentists uh, collect this material and sell it. So uh, we think the dental area is one big source of gold. We don't know the sources of, of everything else, but uh, you know, we had a new building, and uh, we measured silver uh, in the water coming out of the new plumbing. And you know, we don't use lead solder anymore. We use other metal solders and other coatings on faucets. And we actually had measurable amounts of silver coming off of the fixtures in the building that wasn't coming from the city. So we don't know all the sources of things like gold and silver and where they're used. Some are used in biomedical and pharmaceutical devices. 
uh, use some gold. So we don't know yet, and uh, hopefully uh, we can explore some of those ideas in the future because if there is this one hot spot, uh, we'd definitely like to do it. In California in the past, uh, around the semiconductor industry, they had realized that they were discharging a lot of gold, and as soon as they figured that out, guess what? They started recovering it on site before discharging it to the city. So I don't know if there's a hot spot, but by looking at different size cities across the U.S., what we did see is it wasn't related to one industry. The concentrations of gold in these biosolids and silver are fairly uniform across the whole U.S. So that suggests it's not a single type of industry responsible for right. discharging gold. So you know that whole thing where sometimes you're too lazy to go get the glass when you're after you brush your teeth and you just put your mouth right on the faucet and drink. I'm never doing that again. Um, <laughs> so the um, I guess the other question that I have is you know, when you hear you talk about some of these other uh, metals like palladium, vanadium, um, are they just getting into our system once again through other kinds of wastewater, or is it possible that holding cell phones up to our ears or I mean are, are we somehow either getting metals into our bodies and then out of our bodies through the excretion process in ways that might surprise us? Yeah, so we started looking at that a little bit. And in this work that, that we did, one thing that we did is we, uh, we normalized the amount of gold in these biosolids to the amount of gold in the what's called the upper continental crust, just dust. And we really wanted to be sure that we just weren't concentrating dust. And so what we did find is this biomagnification that, you know, the amount of gold is 1,000 to 10,000 times higher than what would be in just so there is a, a real source uh, coming from this. And so, yeah, we, we do consume lots of metals every day in vitamins and other things. And these aren't 100% pure. So I, I think some of these things are in our food. Some of them are in various uh, products you use around your house that end up going cleaning agents and other things, have some metals in them, oils and other solvents and stuff that we use in automobiles and brake fluids and stuff will end up going down the drain. So I think some of these things, um, like we found quite a bit of platinum and palladium, which was kind of interesting because these, these don't dissolve in water. These are really particles, but they, they are used in a lot of uh, catalytic types of processes, both in your car, in air cleaners. They do get into indoor environments and dust. So we don't know all the sources and so fortunately, things like gold aren't necessarily bad for the human body. And so trying to understand where they come from isn't necessarily a critical health concern. But this wastewater treatment plant, it's essentially a living bacterial organism. And other people on, who are collaborators, like Rolf Holden on our team, actually are, are looking at wastewater treatment plants as kind of a big person living in society, that the things that accumulate in the wastewater treatment plant might actually be accumulating in the same mechanisms within our bodies. We're trying to look at this integrator of society to see if wastewater treatment plants mimic humans to some scale. Well, Paul, uh, Dr. Paul Westerhoff, it's been great to talk to you. I have to go do a juice cleanse immediately after this conversation. <laughs> but um, uh, you, you've got given us a lot to think about, and certainly that whole idea of the of the the organism inside the wastewater treatment plant being like a one huge life form. If nothing else, you've got an incredible horror movie that you could make out of that. Uh, it does sound good, doesn't it? It does. You know, I would actually I would pitch that uh, to Universal. All right. Well, Dr. Westerhoff, who's a professor of environmental engineering uh, at Arizona State University, thanks for being with us today. 
Thanks, Colin. It was enjoyable. That was what we might call our number two segment uh, of the show today. Uh, number okay. three is coming up, and it involves uh, Winnie the Pooh. So stay with us. What I've learned so far, don't wash your hair or eat or poop. That's going to free up a lot of time. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Tyone Wolf. Our interns are Alex Dubin, Hallie St. Germain, and Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mr. Hankey. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff, never mind. Visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, do something left-handed. It's International Lefty Day. And now, back to Colin. So we're concluding uh, our Pooh show. We couldn't do a Pooh show without talking about Winnie the Pooh. And fortunately for us, Winnie the Pooh is back in the news. Maybe Winnie the Pooh never completely goes out of fashion or out of the news. But right now, uh, Winnie the Pooh is teaming up with British beekeepers to raise consciousness about the uh, whole issue of disappearing honeybees. So joining us right now are two people uh, involved in this project. One of them is, in fact, Mark Burgess. He's an author, illustrator of children's books for 25 years, illustrated the first authorized sequel to Winnie the Pooh, Return to the 100-Acre Wood, and its most recent book with the British Beekeepers Association, Winnie the Pooh and the Missing Bees. Also joining us is Jane Mosley, Operations Director and General Secretary for the British Beekeepers Association. So Jane, maybe I'll have you start. I'm, I'm sure most people, I think most people understand what the problem is, but for people who don't understand what the problem is, uh, why is it important for Winnie the Pooh and his friends to be talking about bees? Well, Winnie the Pooh is a much-loved character, and we were very lucky to partner with Egmont in the production of the Bee-Friendly Guide. The guide is actually created to raise awareness on the importance of bees and also what people can do to actually support bees, because one of the major problems that honeybees face, as do other pollinators, is the fact that they require a vast amount of forage being food. So they need flowering plants in the form of trees, bulbs, shrubs, annuals, the whole mix to actually provide them with the nourishment that they need to produce healthy colonies. And in the UK and Europe and probably in the US as well, the amount of forage, natural forage, is actually reducing. We're doing a lot of monocrop farming. Therefore, the diversity of forage, which is having something in season for the nine-month foraging season for honeybees, is vitally important. And if we provide that nine-month floral forage, we'll not just be supporting our honeybees, but we'll be able to support all of our other pollinators and wildlife as well. Jane, um, here in the United States, we have something called colony collapse disorder, this really kind of frightening thing where just for no completely explicable reason, um, entire hives, entire colonies of bees just die off. Is that happening in the United Kingdom too? No, it's not happening here to the same degree. We do we do have the odd instance of it, but it's not happening anywhere near on the scale, if at all, here in the UK. We coincided this publication and this campaign in conjunction with our winter survival survey, um, which we do every year. And that winter survival survey this year revealed that we lost 14.9% of the colonies over winter. So it's not good. The year before, it was only 9%. This last year, it was 145 
and that is an indication of the climatic changes. It's a, an indication of the struggles that the queens have in breeding when we've got poor weather, the reduction in the number of swarms because of the change, the lack of forage. So we don't, we're not suffering with CCD like you do. So enter Britain's leading consumer of honey. That would be Winnie the Pooh. Mark Burgess, tell us about this new book, Winnie the Pooh and the Missing Bees. What story is it telling? The story is really a promotional story to go in the booklet that uh, Jane has just been talking about. And uh, it really just is a, is a short little tale about Winnie the Pooh and Piglet looking for the bees which have disappeared. And then at the end of the story, Christopher Robin comes along and he says, well, the bees need flowers to gather food for, for making honey. And what we need to do is to plant more flowers and vegetables, which flower and provide food for bees as well. So all the friends, Winnie the Pooh and his friends, get together at the end and they plant flowers and vegetables and that encourages the bees to come back. So it's really a tale to get children interested in doing things to help bees. That's the whole point of it. So you uh, have already inherited this, the almost daunting task of continuing the work of the illustrator E.H. Shepard. I assume for this book, once again, you're doing original illustrations in the style of Shepard? Yes, the style is sort of, it's known as classic Winnie the Pooh style, really based on as close as possible to Shepard's original illustrations. That's mostly what I do um, for Winnie the Pooh illustrations. Winnie the Pooh never seems to go out of style, right? I mean, uh, it's he's still, uh, I gather, very, very popular with both British children and their parents. Yes, I mean, he's been around now since 1926, I think he first appeared, so quite a long time. And I think part of the charm is that uh, Winnie the Pooh and his friends are all characters that we can identify with in one way or another. They're like people we know, perhaps, within our families or whatever, and they're they're very charming, they're good-natured, they might be grumpy, uh, like Eeyore, but there's no maliciousness there, and they all, by and large, get on very well together. So there's this very charming group of friends that have these adventures in the forest and the Hundred Acre Wood, and um, they are very easy to identify with. And I think along with... Shepherd's charming illustrations, this is what has contributed to their longevity. Um, Jane Mosley, uh, you are, have the fortuitous coincidence of two really legendary figures in uh, British literature being interested in bees right now because I just uh, this summer saw um, uh, the movie Mr. Holmes in which Ian McKellen plays uh, Sherlock Holmes as a now a dedicated beekeeper. So you, you kind of lucked out with that one. How hard was it to get Egmont involved in this and get Mark Burgess involved in this? I mean, anybody would want to have Winnie the Pooh on his or her side. How difficult was it was for you, Jane, to make that happen? We were very, very fortuitous because Winnie the Pooh is such a big fan of honey and the fact that we, people in the UK, people are very much aware that bees are in trouble and we were very lucky in as much as Egmont approached us 
So they approached you. Yes. About their How lucky will. is that? That that is very lucky. <laughs> well, and Mark Burgess, you know, one might say that Winnie the Pooh and Piglet and Eeyore and Christopher Robin, they are for the most part creatures of pure fantasy, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure that there's ever been a Winnie the Pooh story that had a really specific message that had consequences out in the real world. Is that a little bit of a shift for you to make, telling a story that has a real purpose? I suppose it is, yes. But the thing about these is that they are so close to Winnie the Pooh's heart. So how wouldn't he be concerned if they weren't around any longer? It just is so obvious if you think about it. So it just seemed like a natural thing for him to do. Um, and so, Jane Mosley, now it's time to, to find out. I mean, the best thing for us to do is to read the booklet, of course, but it's time for us to find out what a Winnie the Pooh and a Piglet find out from Christopher Robin that they should be doing. You've alluded to a few things, but so w- what's the big takeaway from the Winnie the Pooh story about honey? This booklet is available to everybody. It is available as a download from the website friendsofthehoneybee.com or you can become a friend of the honeybee and then you get a really nice printed version with a special Winnie the Pooh dedicated gift pack. What that does is it tells, gives you 10 sim- simple steps that you and your family, children, doesn't matter whether it's grandparents, parents, children, everyone can get involved in. It's fun things, positive things that you can do to help bees that will keep the children engaged and keep the interest going and also enhance your own local environment. And it's everything from planting a tree to baking a cake. So there's something for everybody within the guide. Of course, you get the beautiful illustrations. I mean, they are absolutely stunning and they are all centred around the bees and they tell the story and each step has its own illustration. So Mark's done a fantastic job. I've already done my part this morning, Jane. I, I am, my breakfast every single day includes a pretty generous portion of local honey. So that's one of the things you can do, right? You can simply use, bake with, otherwise employ uh, local honey. Yeah, that will support your local beekeeper. But the key thing is that one colony of honeybees requires 120 kilograms, which is about 60 pounds of nectar just to survive. And they require 30 kilograms, which is about 15 pounds of pollen, which is the protein, just to survive. That's before they even produce any extra honey for us to consume. So it's really important that if we want to have food on our plate and we want to have a floral environment and we want honeybees to survive, that we start to plant with honeybees in mind. And that will underpin everybody. We'll get our fruits, nuts, seeds and all of the wildlife will, will benefit from that, as will, you know, they'll we'll be creating habitat, and we'll just have a much better environment in, in total. I wish I had the quote at my fingertips. You probably do. Einstein said something to that effect about the honeybee, right? The, yeah. the, the honeybees um, the key. Whether or not that's 100% true, but we need them <laughs> to put the food on our plate. Oh, come on. We've got Sherlock Holmes and Winnie the Pooh. Let's just take Einstein, too. <laughs> Why be shy about this? Why okay, worry? Einstein said that, you know, if, we, if the bees died out, humans would follow about four years afterwards. There you go. You know, we might as well, if we're going to get all these sort of archetypal figures here, yeah, okay. we, we can't worry about verisimilitude. And really, Mark, um, to that point, really, in the past, Winnie the Pooh has been a little bit of a hive disruptor, right? It's yeah. not that he loves bees so much. He loves honey. So I guess you've had to sort of soften his uh, his thinking about this a tiny bit. 
I mean, he's certainly been after the honey, but he'd be very worried if the if the bees weren't around any longer. I mean, in in pretty much the first story ever of Winnie the Pooh, he climbs up a tree after some what he thinks is honey, and it turns out to be the wrong bees, I think, and he gets stung. But um, I, he'd, he'd be very worried if they weren't around, and that's why he's so concerned and wants to do something to make sure there are plenty of honeybees around. You've done this remarkable thing. You've taken this uh, literary franchise that was uh, the creation uh, of A.A. Milne and his illustrator, and you've kept it going. And I'm wondering, how real do these characters start to become for you? I mean, they were probably real in the mind of A.A. Milne in one way, but are you starting to, to feel Winnie the Pooh and these other characters as living, breathing presences in your life? They certainly are to a certain extent, but they will always be... Milne and Shepherd's creations for me. I don't feel that they're in any way mine, but I do identify closely with them because when you draw any character at all, you have to, in some way, inhabit them. So it's a little bit like acting. You you have to become the person or the animal character that you're drawing, and it's only through doing that that you can make a convincing drawing, really. So in that respect, they are part of my life, yes. But they're not my creations, and I would never want to suggest in any way that that I I felt they were. If people like what I do with the characters, that's wonderful. And I'm very honored to have been asked to draw in the same style as as Shepard's. But they're not mine. Well, this is the perfect way for us to end our poo show, which has involved uh, other kinds of poo. But first of all, just to uh, reiterate some of Jane Mosley's ideas, you know, if you live in a city, plant a window box. That's one of the things that Pooh and Piglet are going to tell you to do. Uh, If you live elsewhere and you already have flowers, plant more flowers and even more flowers and use honey, visit an apiary. And boy, if your kid grows up to be a beekeeper, then really, you know, Einstein would give him credit for just saving humankind. So him or her credit for saving humankind. So uh, Jane Mosley and Mark Burgess, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And that concludes our Pooh Show. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for taking this improbable concept and making it a reality. We'll be back tomorrow. I must be made of honey. Her life is very sweet. I got us a cake for our wedding day, darling. Oh, you did? What kind is it? Chocolate. I don't know, baby. It looks like poo. Oh, you caught me, honey. I love poo. (laughs) I love poo, too. (laughs) That's not our best joke. Maybe number two.